begin. The internet, a doorway to the world's most fascinating and terrifying communities. To explore it is to interrogate that which makes us human. Only some are brave enough to venture into these other worlds. Only some are brave enough to be called. The Internet Explorers. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to the very first episode of our brand new podcast, Anderson Brothers, The Internet Explorers. I'm David Ryan Anderson. And I'm Evan Axel Anderson. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, no, no problem. I'm glad that you decided to come. <laughs> I'm afraid I'll have to do it by myself. So my dream with this show is to just take you around, show off a lot of weird, bizarre corners of the internet, and do something I don't think people do very often, this kind of stuff. Lots of times you get these shows where people go around, they're like, look at these weird videos on the internet, look at this bizarre, you know, this goofy website, or whatever it is, or like this weird trend that's going around. That stuff's fine, but I just don't think that that's very interesting anymore. What I'm hoping this podcast can be is, honestly, figuring out what are some interesting communities across the internet, and figuring out how they tick, whether they're disturbing, or fascinating, and weird, or just really cool, whatever it is. Let's get down to who are these people, how do they work, how did they come together and find one another and what can we learn from them kind of stuff, whether it's good or bad. Yeah, we have to sort of elevate ourselves from the sort of freak show appreciation, I guess, of the internet to actual mm -hmm. understanding of the internet. It actually kind of reminds me of the World's Fair in Chicago where they had like, here are a bunch of people from other cultures and they were basically like, held in, in cages, like, cages like zoo animals. Right. And I'm thinking, we gotta go from that to actually understanding these internet subcultures. So our format that we want to do, I'm just going to be really upfront about how we're going to do this thing. Have an opening, a few minutes of just kind of light banter to kind of set the stage, and then we'll get into the real body for most of the episode where we talk about the serious the serious issues for today. And then, you know, maybe we'll, we'll meet up again, have a little, little chill time and close out, and, and that'll kind of be how we do things. So, all right, so Evan, I want to make this a podcast people are going to be excited about, people are going to listen to. And in my research, I've discovered... Peer-reviewed... Did you get up here to review it? I didn't. I'm not oh, in boy. grad school like you are. It's not gonna. It's not gonna do well. In I, went the, I went to the hard knock school of googling things. Gonna have. Gonna have drawing, some jumping stuffy academic yelling at you about it. What I've decided is that people just love like self help stuff. You know, they like these. Mm. They want to. Evan, I want to hack into my own life, and wow. I don't know how to get in there. Yeah, I know exactly how you get in there, David. What makes a good life hack? What do you think? First of all, let's let's establish what a life hack is. I, I, I know, but I want to know if you know. You're going to take something that's kind of difficult in life. You know, yeah. it's, it's some kind of inconvenience. And you're going to find a way to very effortlessly make it easier. I don't believe that life hacks are supposed to make life easier. Because in my experience, most life hacks are absolutely absurd. Like do-it-yourself projects that just waste time and use a lot of hot glue. David, I'm going to learn you real quick okay. about some life hacks. Both good ones that are real and bad ones that I just made up right now. Okay, go for it. Yeah. I'll give you three life hacks, and you choose from among them. Two will be real, one will be fake. And I want you to see if you can spot the fake. Can I spot the fake? Okay, yeah, go for it. Yeah, have you ever had a bagel sandwich? No. What? It's just, you just take a bagel and you put your sandwich like meat inside of it. Sounds inconvenient to me. Well, Only it certainly is. Way. Instead of putting it in a sandwich bag, which yeah. is like gross, and mm -hmm. who does that? Yeah. 
take an old CD case container <laughs> and put it inside there. And you know how the CDs have has, case has yeah, like a little thing a, in the middle? There's a little pillar for the hole. Yeah. It'll hold your bagel and it'll get so mayonnaise all over jostle it. Jostle around? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Lest all of the meat and stuff jostle around. The meat doesn't have a hole in it. Here's another one for you, David. Hey, who cuts cake with like a knife? No one. You use floss to cut a cake. What? Okay, wait a minute. I don't, oh man. Okay, cutting a cake with floss is pretty egregious, but you know what? I bet I could see people out there who would think that you could get the whole cake at once and that's time saving. Last one, headphones. Instead of leaving your headphones to get all tangled, put some pipe cleaners on them. Tape them up, won't get tangled. Unless you tangle up the pipe cleaner. Okay, that sounds pretty bad. I, I don't believe anyone's gonna be duct taping pipe cleaners to their headphones. Maybe, I'm, I'm guessing- Final headphones. answer. Headphones is fake. Headphones is fake? David, you are learning, my boy. Okay, here. Somebody legitimately thinks that cutting a cake with <laughs> floss is a good idea. I, okay, here, check this one out. Okay, I was doing some, I was doing some research into some life hacks too, and okay. what I discovered is that people, people have some awful life hacks. See, this, in my experience, <laughs> they're terrible. So, first of all, people love zip ties. Zip ties will solve, like, any problem. For example, Evan, I'm sitting here with you, and you seem to me to be the type of person who has trouble tying their own shoes. With the magic of just a few zip ties, you just zip tie your shoes closed, like, instead and of using And never take them off ever again. And, well, that's up to you. That's a personal decision. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you that. That's, that's life hack number one. Life hack number two, you ever go to lift up the toilet seat and you go, that's gross, this is part of a toilet, I can't believe I'm touching this with my own bare hands. That's very true, yeah. Well, okay, there's a real simple way you can get around that. Okay. All it requires, hot glue, an old spoon to the underside of the toilet seat, and you got a handle sticking out, you can just lift up the whole toilet seat, you don't even have to touch it yourself. Third life hack, life hackers love putting stuff on electric drills. So, mm. here's what you do. All it takes, you hot glue some razor blades onto a big old fat screw, like the head of the screw. This sounds very dangerous. Then you tighten the screw onto the electric drill, like where the drill bit would go. It sounds you like you're it making, on. you're fashioning a weapon. It's a giant spinning blade you can use to chop through whatever, cardboard, styrofoam, whatever the thing is you need. But it's so much easier than doing it by hand. Which, so of, those, me... which of those is the fake life hack and which are the real good life hacks? Oh man, um, those are all awful. I think here's the, here's my <laughs> thinking: is somebody would definitely think of the toilet seat one because okay. that's an actual like gripe. Okay. Um, I have no idea who would think of the blade on a drill spinning thing. I can't imagine its practical uses. The one that's getting me is the first one: the um, zip tying your shoes. The zip tying your shoes instead of shoelaces. It seems like first time you ever try it, you would realize it's a bad idea. But I don't think life hackers actually do any of the things that they say that they life hack. So I'm gonna say the drill with a bunch of murder blades on it is the fake one. You're right. Yeah. Somebody, there's actually people who are like, yeah, zip tie your shoes instead of shoelacing them. <laughs> Just chop them off later. Who cares? Buy new ones. <laughs> I have no idea. And the hot, the idea of hot gluing a spoon to the under to my toilet seat is ridiculous. <laughs> Anyway, okay, uh, yeah, one more, one more round. So something that people are also obsessed with with life hacks I've discovered is the idea of cutting off the top of a plastic bottle and hot gluing it to a thing mm. so that you have a plastic bottle top on your thing. Love it. So here's, here's my first one. Evan, you ever drink Coke out of a can? Oh. A can of Coke. 
Yeah, and, and you're it's like so inconvenient. It's like if only I could close this can of Coke, but I can't because there's no closing mechanism. Easy. Hot glue the top of a Coke bottle to the can of Coke. See, and I you think have a sealable Coke can. I think they're misunderstanding how permanent this <laughs> this arrangement is with the Coke can. <laughs> I don't know how long they're planning on keeping the can. Right, this is a long-term investment. You think you think that one's going? Here's another one. Evan, do you like orange juice? Oh man! But you I hate love... but you hate having reasonable quantities of orange juice. <laughs> I've got a solution. But for I you. love drinking it. Take an orange, leave the peel on, and hot glue the top of a bottle to the peel of the orange. <laughs> then, using an exacto knife, cut a hole. Now the orange is it's a self-contained little orange juice pod, and you just squeeze it to have the the, the barest amount of juice to come out. Wait, okay, okay, you can okay. drink straight out of the orange. What? How does this work again? You're you're just you're squeezing you leave, your orange. You squeeze the orange so the juice is like separated from the pulp, and then you un you uncap it, and the juice just like squeezes out of the hole you made in the orange out through the out through the bottle top. So you can do that. A third option is Evan have you ever wanted a spotlight on your on your iPhone or or Android or Windows phone you know the light on my phone is just illuminating too many things Oh. Well, here's what you can do. I'm about to check this one out. Cut off the edge of a bottle. Right. Hot glue only a few specific corners, so you're not you're not getting glue all over your phone. Good. So like I like get four at four points. Only only a few <laughs> only a few dabs of glue on my expensive phone. And then hot glue it to the phone over the light. The mouth of the bottle will create a spotlight that'll just focus all the light. Is this like a clear bottle? Because uh, that's not how light works. It, it'll be enough. The plastic's good enough. It works. Maybe I'm misunderstanding exactly what this life hack is doing. Is it the flashlight on You put the... it over the flashlight. So when your flashlight turns on, instead of the light beaming out everywhere, yeah. where you drink from on the bottle, I see. it just shines through that tube and the light all gets directed like a spotlight. You've thought a lot about how the mechanics work of this, which tells me that there's like an actual like logic to it. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say that one's real because... As dumb as it sounds like, sounds like it actually might work, as inconvenient it is. Um, the orange one is gross enough to be true. Mm -hmm. I think... I, th I think the can one with the bottle top on it is is the fake one. Because the orange one sounds like something that somebody's like, Want to drink an actual orange? So do you only think that the can is fake by process of elimination? Or do you actually think it's a stupid idea? Oh, I think they're all stupid ideas, but I think probably it's the stupidest idea. The can one is? Oh, sure. But that's not a good, that's not a good way of going about figuring out if it's a good life hack, though. Well, I've got, I've got a surprise for you, Evan. Oh, boy. You were wrong. What? I couldn't pick just two. Wow, I didn't okay. make up any of those. Those are all actual life hacks. I, I have them on my phone if you want to look at them. Oh, wow. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's awful. Isn't that so funny? Man. <laughs> I don't know who would actually do any of those. Maybe the orange one, just because I, I think it's so funny. Yeah, so I hope you guys are ready because uh, for this episode, we're going to talk about the very first days of the internet and how it gave rise to all the Nazis we see today. So I hope you're I hope you're expecting that. Prepare for a 180 degree turn. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I hope you're ready for that one. That's going to be a lot of fun. It, it really is going to be a good topic. I think you're going to learn a lot. It's very topical today. Absolutely. All right, see you guys on the other side. All right, so today we wanted to talk about, for our first episode, Nazis on the internet. And 
I think that in order to talk about Nazis, what are they doing on the internet, why are they so prevalent, all this stuff, we really have to talk about what even the internet is, like from its very beginning, because I think the two are really tightly linked. So I'm going to give you a little rundown, a little history lesson about the internet. You know, I love history, David. You oh, It's so it's disgusting. Obnoxious. <laughs> all right. This is cool history, though. It's about computers. <laughs> so here's the deal. The internet started in the 90s, early 90s. The idea of it early on, before anybody really knew what to make of it, the way that it was always talked about was the internet would be a land where all status would be eliminated, wealth, race, everything. And it was a land of pure democracy where only ideas would matter. Everything else was just gone. This you know, it was a really optimistic sort of like Star Trek vision of what the future would look like thanks to the internet. So you have this completely democratized society within society where all the people who were left out of you know traditional meat space society would suddenly be able to find their voice just on the you know on the merit of their ideas and and stuff and what ended up happening is the people who were the least successful at navigating traditional society suddenly found themselves with this brand new wild west to tame and those became the people who learn best how to navigate and control this new society. Essentially, what had been developed was this new society taken to zero, where everybody was equal for a moment. But just like in actual human history, on the internet what ended up developing was it was a survival of the fittest and the strongest ended up taking control. Except that this wasn't determined by physical strength or anything like that. This was determined by who was the best at wielding their words, at wielding just persuasion, manipulation, rhetorical methods like uh, twisting words, shouting people down, stuff like this. It became a brute strength war of communication instead of physicality. It was essentially a, I mean, it was, it was a, just a different way of bullying people online. Like, like quickly it was recognized that this was a method to gain control in different areas. And I'm, I'm talking about this as if it's like Genghis Khan rolled in and this happened. This was more just like, over time, trolling, stuff like this, like it became recognized that th these were methods that worked. And it also became recognized that you needed moderators, like people to go around, admins, things like this, to make sure that people were essentially not just like destroying all potential for communication through this. Right. Through just doing these things and trying to like force their, their way, you know, throw their weight around verbally and stuff. Inevitably, like you had, this was a place for people not only individuals who were left out, felt left out of society, but for ideas that felt left out of society to suddenly gain prominence. People could be racist or misogynistic or whatever their thing was. They could let that part of themselves thrive here and drown out other more moderate, sensible voices because those types of positions just didn't demand that kind of extreme rhetoric and stuff that tends to dominate conversations. And in that world, you found conspiracy theorists and Nazis and hate groups. These things had a place to thrive. The internet was not exclusively these people, but they had they had their place there. Right. I mean, this was, I mean, you know, like growing up, like that was a, a joke with like, don't read the comment sections. It doesn't matter. You can, you can find a video of a puppy on YouTube. And if you scroll down to the comments, you'll find people arguing about race and like affirmative action or something like that, like whatever it is. This, this type of conversation and dialogue manages to always find a position of prominence in online discussion. Now, recently, this is a big conversation in America right now. Oh yeah, it turns out that lots of Nazis are coming out of the woodwork 
to support Donald Trump or his policies. Yeah. You have self-proclaimed Nazis and Nazi-adjacent people in positions of prominence, either in Trump's administration or coming out to support him. You've got Alex Jones, coast-to-coast UFO guy. I, I don't understand how the guy, the guy who was on the radio talking about alien abductions has somehow gained a position of authority where now he is somehow qualified to report on American politics. This guy who, I, anyway... Infowars. This inf- the Infowars guy. Yeah, yeah. My point is that we've underestimated, or at least everybody else. I don't think I have, and this is what I want to get into a little bit. Is that I would like to say that I was the I was the prophet who saw this coming. <laughs> this entire podcast is David uh, yelling into the wind. Everybody, I saw it coming. I mean, but, but legitimately though, the reason I wanted to do a podcast about these weird internet subcultures is because not just because I think they're like bizarre and fascinating and whatever, but because I think we can't keep telling ourselves that the internet isn't a real place anymore. Like the internet is a place, it's a completely legitimate part of society and increasingly that's being proven. There are political debates with heads of state going on on like Twitter. Twitter, So it's a very, it has ramifications for real life. It does. For a while, I've I've been interested in the idea of who are the people out there who their mode of interaction and meeting each other is the internet because they're they're building a, a real community and real communities have real world consequences and influence and stuff like he, so it only makes sense to treat them as real pl- like real people not just like some weird like sideshow like some circus freak show or something they're like that's weird well, those are where the weird people live well it's i mean you can't say there are some weirdos that are far away from me. You have to think of the internet as being is almost in your neighborhood, essentially, now. Geography is over, yeah. Exactly. The internet is your neighborhood, and these weirdos are in your neighborhood. Yeah, they're they're living they're living everywhere. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't... I mean, I'm, I'm saying this as if it's like, oh, be careful, the internet are coming. <laughs> the internet are coming. But, like, what I mean, like, legitimately, like, like, there is no... There's no such thing as, like, over there anymore in, in a lot of ways. I mean, still in some ways, obviously, but... So for today, I want to talk about, for this first episode, I feel like internet Nazis are just the best example of this right now. If talking about Nazis doesn't get us clicks, David, I don't know what it is. Right. Yeah, so I, this is where I probably tell everybody that a huge pastime of mine for the past over a decade is... I really enjoy just like seeking out communities online that are unusual to me and I legitimately don't understand and I try to understand them. And in a lot of cases, that understanding becomes, oh, I really figured out why I thought I didn't like you and have been confirmed in the case of like (laughs) Nazis and stuff. In other cases, I don't really see what the big deal is. You guys seem like fine people, like who cares? Which I'm sure this stuff will come up in other podcasts. I'll leave you guessing who's who. (laughs) No, so I, I I do this, and for maybe the past four years, uh, once Trump and everything started happening, I kind of stopped doing this. For a few years before that, I was really into talking to Nazis on Twitter. People who legitimately believe that I am an abomination. I'm a genetic abomination because of my racial background, and that is fascinating to me. And, and I hope this doesn't come across as me saying how fun it is to go spelunking into experiencing racism. I realize that for a lot of people, hearing these kind of things is an inescapable part of life. For me, I, th- I think I still have enough patience to interact with them. I, don't, I definitely don't think that everybody should go do that. 
But as somebody who has, uh, I, I'm just trying to report on what I've seen, that I could just find this person and have a virtual cup of coffee with them and say, you think I'm an abomination? Tell me about that. Why yeah. is that? And I could just get complete unfiltered. And they're, they're always anonymous, obviously, because they recognize that they are one of the most despised yeah. groups, at least, at least like vocally despised, even if lots of times, you know, maybe people would let it slide if they said something like that in conversation or like play it off as a joke or something. Who knows? But like outwardly saying I am a Nazi is still taboo. So they recognize that. And it's really fascinating because they are living online in a bubble. There are Nazi bubbles and there are certain ways to find them. They have certain hashtags you can use. A really popular one, probably the top one, if you tonight want to find a bunch of legit straight up Nazis, all you got to do is do hashtag white genocide is the top way to find them. Mm. And you'll find all the all the things that they believe are indicative of the genociding of the white race. It's every everything from immigration to race mixing. They love posting. I don't even know how many of these are real, but they love posting articles about white people being murdered by any other race. You know, white women getting raped or something. There's always like this, like we got to protect our women type of thing. Mm. They love. Po- there's okay. So here's the here's one of the probably the weirder things that I've discovered about Nazis is they have their own memes. They have ton. they make memes out of everything and they're super disturbing and hateful. <laughs> yeah. I feel like if you're, if like the thing that's connecting you and like the topic of discussion with this meme is uh, white genocide, doesn't sound like it's going to be a super pleasant one or funny or anything. No, well, see, they'll make jokes, though. They will find humor in these things, mm. but it's, like, it's really disturbing. So, yeah. for example, there'll be, like, these really bizarre, like, political cartoons of kids watching a TV that says the Jew bot. Or, no, no, I'm sorry. The electric Jew is how they refer to television. The Jewish elite liberal media, like, mind like, controlling their kids. Electric Jew sounds like a DJ name. It sounds like a cool name, actually, yeah. yeah. It'll be like, have your has your child gotten their daily dose of the electric Jew and stuff? I mean, it's stuff His like this. His beats are so good. It's, yeah. <laughs> Time for my daily dose of the electric Jew. <laughs> I like that. Somebody one of our, one remix of our, it. One of our Jewish listeners out there, please become a DJ called the electric Jew. <laughs> Let's reclaim that from the racists. Yeah. The reason I think it's important to talk about this stuff is because people know there's Nazis online. Like I said, that's been a huge joke. Right. But the fact that they're finding ways to bypass geological boundaries means that inevitably, it seems, they're going to be gaining motivation and power just because like, now they can build communities where they couldn't before. What we're getting now is a community that was born, that found a place online early on, that discovered they could wield words in such a way that they can manipulate and reach out to young people and shout down their opponents. These people are some of the best trained people to thrive in this new world that we've built online. Right. And they've gotten really good at figuring out how to make sure that they're playing the game dirty. So when I say that they figured out how to play dirty, this is the kind of thing that I mean. The internet was developed on a principle of democracy, of being able to come out and speak, and your value is determined by your words. And a huge part of that, obviously, is free speech. The Nazis now, I mean, and this is a thing that's coming up in real life, is figuring out how to take the concept of free speech and make that a dirty word, like turn that into a negative thing. So 
in the wild west of the internet, free speech means there is absolutely no limit on what can be said. That means that hate speech can find a place to thrive. There's an expectation when you're talking to somebody, when you're debating them, that they're engaging by some certain rules of debate and logic. And a Nazi doesn't have to do that. Mm. All a Nazi has to do is make sure that you're too frustrated to move the ball and make any actual progress. Because a Nazi can make up a lie or make a personal attack on you or whatever they have to do. You can do that in an instant. You can make that up. To fact check and be responsible takes time. You know, I mean, what's that term? Like the, the a lie makes it around the world before the truth gets its shoes on or something. Yeah. By engaging in debate with them, you're basically saying, wear me out. Yeah, I was actually going to say... Um... This isn't new for Nazis, for fascists, for anti-Semites. Right. I mean, a lot of the things you're saying right now that seem like new trends specifically for the internet yeah. have been sort of things that have been going on with the invention of, I guess, mass politics and democracy in general. Okay. So I, I'll, I'll talk about it in a second. But what we're talking about immediately in terms of engaging in debate mm-hmm. with Nazis and sort of how... It's, it's almost pointless in the sense of you, okay. you're you giving that Nazi sort of recognition that I respect your arguments or your reasons or mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, I get that there's a third party that you're trying to expose this person to, but the fact right. that they're already a Nazi and they're talking to you like on the internet and they may be more coy about it or they might be unabashed. Like, so I guess it really depends on what your goals are with that debate. If it's just to prove them wrong, that's not going to happen. Right. And when I talk to these Nazis, typically what it's been is it's legitimately like me going in as a reporter being like, tell me what you think. Like, I want to see the unfiltered Nazi. Like, I want to see what you guys actually believe. Occasionally they'd want to get in debates with me. And I would really, I would do it sometimes because lots of the things that they claim are just straight up untrue. And they don't always know you're coming. That's the nice thing about something like Twitter is you can go, you can do hashtag white genocide, go in there, pop up and start debating with them. And they're not ready with the manipulation and stuff yet. Like they're just making claims and stuff to one another. Right. So like that's a thing is you can just pop in at like a moment's notice when they're on, you know, when they're on their back foot or something, they're not ready for you. But I mean, and you, you can do that. But it really, I mean, for me personally, like my conflict is what does this mean about can you just reeducate a Nazi or whatever? I believe you can, but when it comes to this debate tactic thing, how do you penetrate something like that? Like, that's so bizarre. Yeah, so Jean-Paul Sartre, a philosopher, French philosopher, lived during World War II. And in the immediate aftermath, he wrote a book called Anti-Semite and Jew. Um, Sounds like a great kid series. (laughs) Two friends, the Anti-Semite and Jew, uh, hanging out their their adventures together in France. (laughs) And essentially, he he goes about it a very in a very academic way of sort of breaking down like what are the attitudes, where are the strategies that these people use. Okay. Sort of, it's sort of an anthropological study almost. Yeah. Um, but let me read a quote that I think is very relevant for what we're talking about right now, which is: "Never believe that anti-Semites are completely unaware of the absurdity of their replies. Hmm. They know that their remarks are frivolous." open to challenge, but they are amusing themselves. Right, yeah. For it is their adversary who is obliged to use words responsibly, since he believes in words. The anti-Semites have the right to play. They even like to play with discourse, for by giving ridiculous reasons, 
They discredit the seriousness of their interlocutors. They delight in acting in bad faith, since they seek not to persuade by sound argument, but to intimidate and to disconcert. And if you press them too closely, they will abruptly fall silent, loftily indicating by some phrase that the time for argument is past. That okay, that's actually really fascinating because that is those tactics that you're talking about that like were used by you know by Nazis and anti Semites, you know, almost a century ago. Yeah. Those are the prevalent tactics online to establish dominance. I I don't know if that developed just because like, you know, like that that's the path of least resistance, like among humans or something like that just makes sense. Or if that's some kind of some sort of strategy that's been maintained over time. I don't know what that is, but that actually is really fast. Like that is, that's exactly it. That's what I've experienced talking to them online. Well, like I said, they're willing to manipulate words and, and rhetoric and argument. Lots of times their only goal in debate is to try to humiliate you for their own amusement. And they have such like, I mean, they'll, they'll go to any, like it's, it's insane the things they'll do to try to disrupt actual conversation with them. For example, a thing, this like a, a thing they love doing, this is a really popular tactic, is if you start talking to them and they realize that you are quote, anti-white, like you support diversity in any way, they'll say, why do you hate white children? Why do you want to murder white babies? Things like this. For me, like this really threw me for a while when I first encountered it because I'm like, what do they think that I'm advocating here that I want to kill white children or that I'm supporting some sort of genocide? Like, what is this? And it took me a a bit, but I realized really all they're saying is you are encouraging a world where less pure white children are being born. The children are going to be mixed which is absolutely not at all what it sounds like they're accusing you of, and they know it. This is part of an attempt to humiliate you, put you on the defensive. They're trying to put a position in your mouth and make you deal with it, and it it just breaks down actual debate. You can't actually talk about the positions if all of a sudden you're saying, well, I don't want to kill white babies. Let me break down for you all the reasons why you're wrong about that. Like, they know they're wrong. It's not a real position they're taking. They're trying to disrupt you. Yeah. Yeah, it's this really weird thing. Here's what's interesting, and I think I want to get back to the thing I mentioned earlier. I sort of teased this that so you it. you mentioned that the internet was sort of an unrestricted sense of democracy, and yeah. sort of the everybody's equal. There is a free speech that's going on, and mm-hmm. that's sort of the ideal world for communication. Yeah. Well, something that was happening at the time that fascism first was born at the beginning of the 20th century was mass politics. Mm -hmm. Democracy was a thing, but by the early 20th century, more and more people were becoming enfranchised. There was greater suffrage in at least the West where fascism was born. So you're saying fascism is a response to democracy? No, but I, I think it's an interesting sort of perversion of mass involvement in anything. Okay. Because you have fewer people sort of regulating what is being done so for politics you just have everybody can vote everybody can enter into politics you don't just have aristocrats in government at this point because it it is very interesting that at the time that you have more engagement in democracy like actual political democracy that's when fascism is born And the moment that you have the internet where a bunch of people can talk and you have sort of this democracy of information, you have internet fascism is sort of, or internet Nazis are also Whatever, it's a weird thing. Yeah, I don't know if there is a term for this exactly. I don't, I don't know either. And I don't know if this is, I mean, this is sort of a huge, this is like a very macro historical trend that I guess I can only see two instances of it happening we would need to have some sort of other huge 
revolution of politics or information like the flourishing of democracy or like the birth of the internet to see if that happens a third time. But and, yeah, I mean, I'm talking about this the bet like in terms as best as I can. Yeah, it's a weird thing that I don't I don't know if we're we fully grasp all the things that are going on. We don't even fully grasp fascism to be honest <laughs> like just that that concept like yeah. i don't know i i mean most people just use it as a term of abuse you know i don't think most would have a very nuanced or good definition of what it even is i'm actually i'm reading a book uh right now by robert paxton came out in 2004 called the anatomy of fascism and sort of the common refrain of the author is like i'm not going to define fascism it's better to just study it in practice to kind of understand what it is. The reason why it's hard to define it is because it avoids ideology. What does that mean? Like ideology, like we were just talking about how anti-Semites manipulate to get ahead in an argument to uh, coerce, to intimidate people. Okay. Fascism as an ideology uh, like manipulates in order to gain support or to drown out people and it uses ideas and abuses them and it really doesn't adhere to ideology the same way that like a Marxist would or a liberal would or a old-fashioned conservative would. Would it be... F- okay, so if, if I'm understanding what you're saying, are you saying that fascism is essentially the conservation of power by whatever ideology it takes at that moment or something or here i have another i have another quote okay so this is by a very early italian fascist a guy who founded the fascist party in italy with mussolini bertale mm-hmm. i don't i don't speak italian me neither he wrote a book called aspects of fascist ideology okay and it's a very telling quote it's a bit dense uh it's, we'll a, it's kind of hard we'll unpack it So the quote is, We fascists don't think ideology is a problem that is resolved in such a way that truth is seated on a throne. Hmm. But in that case, does fighting for an ideology mean fighting for mere appearances? No doubt, unless one considers it according to its unique and efficacious psychological historical value. The truth of an ideology lies in its capacity to set in motion our capacity for ideals and action. Its truth is absolute, insofar as living within us, it suffices to exhaust those capacities. So I understood that, but I want to know if you understood that. So the first thing he says is that ideology is a problem that isn't solved by putting truth on a throne. So already he's showing that ideology is something that's a block. It's a it's a hindrance to fascists. Okay, interesting. And that the way you solve it isn't by looking for truth. So a Marxist has their own understanding of what truth is, right. a liberal will, yeah. a conservative will. But a fascist realizes that truth is something that they can manipulate to, in Bertelli's uh, words, to motivate and to exhaust the capacities to action. So ideology, as long as you can manipulate it in certain ways to get people to act the way you need them to, yeah. that's all that's necessary. So when I am talking to these internet Nazis and their goal is to humiliate me or exhaust me or like try to get me to quit the debate or something like that, that is like legit, like that's literally like the core of fascist. According, according to this particular guy, at least. That's what he's arguing. 
Well, yeah, I think he's arguing that essentially any strategy that they need to mm-hmm. get you to act, fascism is very centric on action and on will. Okay, right. Which goes back to the history of the founding of fascism, which is you had a lot of socialists and Marxists who are like, using political systems is too slow to okay. get things done. Like, the very first fascists were, like, Marxists. They were syndicalists. You know, Mussolini was originally a Marxist. Okay. But he eventually sort of moved away from a lot of the more left-wing views of it. And, I mean, by the time you're in the 30s when Hitler's coming to power, these fascist movements are really, I, you know, you associate them more with the right. Which, yeah, yeah. I mean, fascism is, like I said, they, they change ideology and they change their views to motivate action. Yeah. So I almost think it doesn't fit on a left-right spectrum almost aside from the individual views that they're in, that they're associating themselves with at that very moment so where does racism come into all this i mean like fascism and and anti-semitism aren't the same thing but i mean but so often we've seen them linked like what's i would say racism is actually the core if there is any ideological belief that is central to fascism yeah. i would say it is Racism. Really? National chauvinism has been at the core of every single fascist movement ever. Uh, Sort of a belief that your nation or whatever the unit you're in Mm -hmm. is superior to all others and to uh, aggrandize it, to make it greater, to make it more powerful, to make it destroy its uh, other nations or other uh, opponents has always been at the center of fascism. So well, you could if if socialism makes your nation greater, then that is something a fascist likes. Or if going to war with another country is something that makes your nation greater, then that is something a fascist likes. Okay, so this is really interesting because also the thing is, this ties in nicely, is how these online Nazis have been able to sort of fold in other communities that don't even realize, I think, what they've become a part of. It's so diverse, but always at the center of it seems to be communities that are stereotypically white men. So you've got video game communities who are like angry about the diversity in video games, whether it's women or minorities, whatever. You've got these really diehard Ayn Rand objectivists who really believe in a person's merit comes from just their own work ethic and stuff like that. Who te- I mean, those people just tend to be more white men. Why that is, is a whole different topic, but... Yeah. That's just who, who they tend to be. And, now, and you know, with the alt-right stuff, I mean, we're seeing, like, these men's right activists types, type people are getting folded into this. Yeah. And you talk to a lot of these people, and a lot of them get called Nazis right out. They may fit the bill in a lot of ways, but they themselves are like, what are you talking about? I'm not a Nazi. I'm just a guy who likes video games. I'm not a Nazi. What are you talking about? Right. And what they don't realize is that their causes have been, in a lot of ways, hijacked by... These online, you know, I guess online fascist people who are trying to fold them in. Yeah. And a big thing we've seen with this, to get back to the free speech issue, we see guys going around tiki torches on the news talking about how they need their freedom of speech. That freedom of speech debate has just finally reached meat space. It's been going on online for decades. This idea of any restriction on us at all telling us that our hate speech ideology or whatever it is, is not acceptable here. That is an obstruction of free speech. And the weird thing is that the alternative to that is, no, it's not to have true free speech. We have to have people who are willing to say that is or is not acceptable. 
Because how can everybody have room to speak if there's not some kind of cap put on the people who would bully you out of there? And that's now, that has become a flag for this alt-right group who are being called Nazis and stuff because what they're doing in practice is exactly what these fascists have been doing. They might not identify that way at all. They might not see themselves as racist or fascist or whatever, but they have been, through these innocuous methods, they've is that is that's a re- innocuous, innocuous. a thing can be innocuous if it's you know you're like i don't care yeah okay yeah. but through innocuous methods like the nazis they know what they're doing they had they completely plan this out you can find there's websites and boards and things where they will talk openly with themselves that you can go find they get shut down off and they move around whatever it is i won't get into exactly what these websites are but you find places where their their entire goal is how do we make our views palatable to other potentially susceptible groups of loner white guys who feel ostracized by society and we can be innocuous enough that they can pick it up and think that it's their own it's like an, it's like incepting them to believe that these ideas we're inoculating our messages we are inoculating that's not a is that a real word inoculate inoculate no in, inoculate you make it inoculate it's definitely not if a that's word. not a word i'm making it a word i'm looking this up on you're googling it i got this on merriam-webster dictionary app the most David, trustworthy of the apps i'm currently in the process of getting a master's <laughs> like i mean you know i, I think i'm like, like kind of i i mean i i actually really like that term though because in not so you inoculate someone you give them a little bit of something a disease yeah. in order to make them immune to it right to inoculate someone you give them a little bit of a disease to make <laughs> to feed it to them so the, it can the, grow. The disease in them. of internet Nazism. Yeah, no, I like the inoculation is the opposite of inoculation. Ooh. Oh yeah. That's oh man. Word. Oh, I love that. That's good. Yeah, you love that word that you just invented. I did. Well, anyway, that's what these Nazis are you doing. You sold me on my own word. <laughs> <laughs> the Nazis are inoculating people and they have and they don't realize. And I know that this probably is coming across as I'm some kind of crazy conspiracy theorist or something. Like, oh, the Nazis are infiltrating society, the pod people, blah, blah, blah. There's no hyperbole or anything when I say legitimately, like, they are plotting on how to infiltrate, how to to make themselves more palatable to society. For example, I'm sick of talking about it. I know everybody's sick of hearing about it. But during the election, when Donald Trump was running, you could see, you could go to their websites, you could go, you know, on places like Twitter or something, and you could just watch them speak to one another where they would debate, is Donald Trump the dictator that we've been waiting for? A lot of them said no, but what uh, what they generally always agreed on is even if he's not the dictator we're waiting for, he's still our guy. We have to back him because if we can drum up popular support for this guy, he's going to be a stepping stone to making our stuff appear more reasonable and for people to take seriously, which they don't normally. And we have no way of measuring how influential these Nazis, regardless of how effective they're being, this is, they're consistently trying this. This is their main goal, is how do we sneak in fascist, or in some cases just mon- like monarchist politics into the mainstream. Yeah. And that is essentially like why I think it's worth talking about these people. And there's other groups online who are finding their ways of influencing the world outside of their online bubbles. They're not, obviously, they're not all as sinister as online Nazis are. Mm. I still think it's worth talking about these communities, like how they function and stuff, because our world is increasingly going to be defined by people you have never met and you did not even realize existed. Right. Until all of a sudden, you know, they're on the news. Yeah, they're on the news or you're being accused of being one of them. Right. And it's like, 
oh, wait a minute, what? Like, I did, I wasn't even aware that there was an entire community that I somehow fell into. I didn't even realize that they were there. Yeah. Sort of a thing. And that's not to say that all these people are actually Nazis. I bet a lot of them don't even know what they believe in a lot of issues. A lot of them are young. And this is this is a statistic they love to throw around, is that this upcoming generation, Generation Z, whatever, is the most, they'll say the most conservative generation of all time. I have no idea where these st- statistics come from. I have never... It comes from the top of my head. <laughs> I've never, I've never been, I've, ga- I've asked many people for the source. I've never been given them. Mm. It's just one of those things that floats around. But it this is always among people who are also saying the Nazi stuff to say. Right. And I question whether most conservative actually means just that they believe in smaller government or whether it means something something more sinister than that. They're making, uh, they're sort of dog whistling that this new generation, Generation Z, which sounds like it's a zombie generation. It to does, be yeah. I wonder if I wonder if that was intentional or not by whoever it is. I think I have gen- Generation A after that. What are they doing? Generation Double A. <laughs> so I mean, that's that's kind of what I wanted to talk about with this first episode. And if you had asked me ten years ago if I thought that the internet could be a bastion of democracy, I probably would have said no. That's ridiculous. Have you ever used the internet? No way. Today, I think we're moving in a direction where companies that host content. Or people have to start to choose sides, I think. Mm. We can't just say freedom of speech is a thing. People are going to be free. They're going to say what they want. That's the end of it. Like, people are demanding... I mean, this even gets into the conversation about safe spaces. Like, people are demanding places where people are going to enforce rules about what is and is not acceptable. And I know that on some level that feels very uncomfortable and sort of Orwellian for me to say on some deep level that feels wrong or something but i think that it's reasonable to say that there's a middle ground between this pure democratic anarchy that we're used to seeing online where the strongest voices prevail and sort of beat down the weak and a democracy that is backed by a reasonable set of rules that we can consistently come back to and examine as a society to protect everybody's voices i think everybody for the most part regardless of where you are on the political spectrum you can get behind that idea we do that already in society yeah it's it's more of like a we were saying nazis aren't going to admit in like public outside of the anonymity of the internet. They're not going to go around walking and saying that they're a Nazi although, as readily. Although they have, I mean, they're well, getting as readily, more empowered though as time goes on. Which I know, I think the point of the podcast that we've enunciated is those differences are wearing away very quickly. It is. We're not, we're not at that point yet if we ever get to that point. But that, that's definitely the direction they want to go. And if I had to leave with one point, it's that these people online, they know how to play the game that a lot of us don't even realize is being played yet. And I think that we have to watch out for that because, I mean, like, obviously most conservatives don't want to be associated with Nazis or have Nazis or people who are Nazi adjacent suddenly taking over, you know, the political discourse on their behalf or something. Just another thing why I think this is basically the repeating of a historical trend, because you know how Hitler came into power in the first place? He wasn't elected by a majority. His party didn't come into power. It came to power through a coalition with conservative parties who were Mm. so afraid of the left. They were like, listen, we don't like the fascists, but like we'll work with them so our other political opponents who we think are worse and who we know we can't manipulate will win out. Right. And sort of their their bet was, okay, 
the NSDAP, the Nazi party, has a huge enough following that if we get them in on this coalition, fascists cling on to the right, which had fears of far left politics. And the fear I think I have now is that you could have a similar thing happen again, where the right is hijacked by fascists because of fears of basically far left politics. Yeah. I mean, that's how it happened in Germany. I think that people have to be aware that there's a much bigger world around them with this stuff. And I don't know, I, I, ideally, that's like part of what this podcast is about. Not just warning people, like we're going to talk about interesting things like goofy stuff too also, but not, not everything going to be as heavy as this. But it, I wanted this to be a thesis statement type of episode. So Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited though. I think that there's a lot of cool stuff out there to talk about. I can't wait to do it. I know. We'll explore the internet together. You we, and me and all of our listeners. All of us. It's called the Internet Explorers, but David and I aren't the only explorers in this. You'll be coming with us on our adventure through the internet. A, a life hack that I invented when I was a kid is uh, I was afraid that somebody might turn on a really powerful electromagnet behind me and when they did all of the forks and knives would be sucked towards it and I didn't want the prongs or, or the sharp blade ends to be pointed at me because I didn't want to get impaled on all the silverware if somebody turned a magnet on right so uh, I always pointed the curved ends towards me and I thought that was very smart hmm. and I, I did that so much as a kid that now instinctually I can't help it I'm just I'm always like there's no harm in taking the extra moment to point the sharp ends away from me on <laughs> all utensils I come across. So that was my life hack as a kid. That was that was a good one. That was a kid life hack. I think that was a better life hack. I know that like after I fell down the stairs when I was a kid with mm-hmm. like doing this, yeah. I always made sure that like my teeth were always like kinda together. Oh yeah, yeah. So they never you never stab yeah. yourself in the face with your own teeth. Yeah, because that was bad news. Right, right. Yeah. I yeah, I don't I don't know if I had anything similar. That's a good one. Another life hack I had that was pretty successful is uh my mom would always play these songs that'd be like, If the devil comes to your door, oh. then I will not <laughs> yeah. let him in. And I was pretty terrified that I'd be walking past the door one day and the devil would be standing there like, hey, hey, kid, hey. And hey, if, I made, in, if I made eye contact with him, he'd be like, yeah, I know, I know you saw me. Let me in. Let me in. He'd be like, oh, no. <laughs> if you don't look, they won't know you're there. <laughs> so my life hack was to, was to always, whenever I passed by the door, I would always sneak behind the dining room table, like behind the chairs so that if the devil was there, he wouldn't even see me and I could sneak by and I would never look at the door. It and worked. <laughs> it, it, absolutely. I don't remember you ever being, uh, you letting the devil in at any point. Yeah. Yeah, if we're talking about like tests of dexterity and of, uh, of an acrobatic ability, we have a very creaky house that we grew up in. And the floorboards are creak. And I would know like which floorboards yeah. creak because I would wake up super early before everybody else wake up. And I'd be like, I'm going to go watch TV downstairs in the basement. You're sneaking around like it's like uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade or something. Essentially, I'm looking for the eye Step- all yeah. the time. Stepping, yeah, right. It's Latin. Latin. Latin begins with an I. Latin Jehovah begins with an I. So those are some good life hacks from our from from our own lives. Actually, the creaky floorboard thing. I think everybody's probably done that. They know exactly where to step to make the least amount of noise. You gotta stay stuff. near the moldings. You gotta stay near the walls because the farther out you go, the squeakier it gets. Right. Yeah. No. There's more. There's more opportunity for the, for the floorboards to become loose from the nails. Right. That's a pretty good one. 
<laughs> so if you sneak around the house, if you're going to burglarize, <laughs> always stay close to the wall. This walls. is the most educational, valuable part of the entire podcast, I think. <laughs> well, I had a lot of fun with this. I, I think that this was great. I can't wait for the next one. Yeah. Uh, our next episode is going to be our a spooky Halloween episode. And uh, we are going to be talking about the Montauk Boys, the true stories, or at least the real stories that inspired Stranger Things. Yeah, I hope the stories aren't true. I'm pretty positive they're not true because they involve a lot of crazy stuff. So I'm, I'm hoping they're not true either. But it's going to be there's going to be a lot of spooky storytelling in that episode. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one too. Get like a get like a, a comforter and some like Hot cocoa? Ooh, get some, Is that what you... Get some Epsom salt for your feet. <laughs> Go house to house and beg them for processed candies. Egg, the, egg all Dress up as a ghost. If they give you nickels instead of candy, nickel the houses. That's what we used to do. <laughs> Whip some nickels at the, at the windows. Make sure you hit them in soft parts of their bodies. Get them, no, way. hard parts. Right in the skull. <laughs> get them right where it hurts. Tailbone. <laughs> their brand new hips. <laughs> Nice chrome hips. Mm. Anyway, this was somehow about our podcast. You done kids hitting me with nickels. I don't like those Montauk boys hitting us with the nickels. <laughs> They're stealing our Christmas pie. Those Montauk boys stole my Christmas pie. It's our Christmas pie now. <laughs> the Montauk boys are some kind of like Southern. Something. They're the Dukes of Hazard, basically. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's been a good episode. <laughs> uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Bye, everybody. I'm David Anderson. I'm Evan Anderson. And we're... The, the Anderson, Anderson brother. Were you going to say Internet Explorers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good night. Good night. <laughs> All right, goodbye, please. Hey everyone, it's David again. The show is over. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode. Uh, it was so much fun to make, and I can't wait for all the next ones. They're already in progress. But you know how it is. It's time for credits. So first of all, I'd like to give a really big thanks to Something Unreal, that's his screen name online, for allowing us to use his Windows 98 and Windows XP remix song as the main music you heard throughout the episode. He said we could use it for free as long as we didn't charge anyone anything to listen to our podcast, so you have him to thank for that. I would also like to thank Mr. Hygie Driver, I think it's pronounced, for his Windows Vista remix, which is what's playing right now. I think it's pretty beautiful. But uh, that's it for today, and I'm going to let you go with that because this is my favorite part right here. <laughs> <laughs>